Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The Canadian woman whose sexual assault allegations against Bill Cosby led to his conviction is now speaking out publicly. Andrea Constant has given her first interview since the trial. She spoke about her long fight for justice and how she feels now. Natalie Nanowski has the details. Natalie, what did Andrea Constant have to say? Well, John, as you mentioned, this is the first time that she spoke out since the trial. And in the exclusive interview, she says that she, she took us through everything that happened. She explains how she met Cosby in 2004 when she was working at Temple State University at the basketball team there. She says that she considered Cosby very much so a mentor and that when he did approach her a few times uh, sexually, that she, that she turned him down. And then she says that on one night in 2004, she went over to his home to to get some career advice she says that she was very nervous unable to to speak and really gather her thoughts and that's when she says cosby offered her three blue pills that he called her friends after she took them she says that her legs were completely that that she that her whole body and her legs felt like noodles and that she was unable to do anything she says at that point that she woke up and and she felt something penetrating her and then she also says that she felt him take her hand and, and use it to masturbate. She says the next day when she woke up, she was obviously very rattled by what happened. And But unfortunately, she says that she was unable to tell anyone, John, because she says that she didn't think anyone would believe her. I didn't think anybody would believe me. It was Bill Cosby. It was Dr. Huxtable. I thought I was the only person that he did this to. Who's going to believe me? Well, two years later, she did end up telling her mother and she attempted to press charges. But uh, the district attorney's, a, a district attorney's office in that state refused to do so. And it really wasn't until 2014 when a proper, when a popular U.S. comedian made allegations and called Cosby a racist, a rapist, that then there was a, there was a slew, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of Me Too allegations came out from that. And and that's what really forced uh, the district attorney's office to, to reopen the case. And that's when Constance said that she would testify against him. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. There is so much going on right now with so many cases. But there's one case that continues to blow my mind. There are so many twists and turns. If you wrote it into a script, people would say it was just too far-fetched and unbelievable, and no one would think that it could ever possibly happen in reality. But it has, and it did. Now, I've mentioned it before when I talked about Britney Spears, how Britney was not free, but Bill Cosby was. And I have to say, I'm still reeling. I wanted to share a conversation with you that I had with a very special guest, Nikki Weissensee Egan. If you don't know Nikki, she was the journalist who pursued the rumours and the case, 
Well, she actually pursued truth and she pursued the truth for 18 years. She broke the story when no one else would. Nikki spoke with the women that he abused and she amplified their voices and she never gave up. When Cosby was released, both of us were confounded. And what has happened since is just unbelievable in every way. Anyway, before I get all fired up again, you need to hear this fascinating conversation. But before we dive into it, here's the trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised. Our discussion may well be triggering and it will be angry making. I'm Nikki Wisensee Egan. I'm an author and investigative journalist. And specifically, I'm the author of the book Chasing Cosby and executive producer and host of the podcast Chasing Cosby and the co-author of the book Victim F. I'm really pleased that we've managed to carve out some time to talk on Crime Analyst. And we've spoken before, I mean, numerous times, actually, but our interviews on Real Crime Profile were in 2020 on um, your projects, Chasing Cosby, the book, and you've got an incredibly successful podcast. The world has changed a lot in that time since we spoke. And I really wanted to jump on to talk to you about your work and your pursuit of the truth. I'm going to call it that, the pursuit of the truth and platforming the the women's voices. And I also want to get your take on, on what's happened subsequently. So welcome to Crime Analyst. And where should we start first of all? To perhaps give my listeners an idea of how you got involved with this particular case, which has really been, what is it now, 15, 16 years, probably even more. Yeah, we're coming up on 18 years, believe it or not. Wow. I just I, I know it's surreal. I first always start out by saying I was a huge Bill Cosby fan when all of this started back in January 2005. I grew up watching Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids on Saturday morning cartoons with my brother. I loved the Cosby show when it came out. It debuted the year my older brother had died and it, my family was in disarray and it really helped give me a safe place to go to each week. So that was where I was coming from in January 2005 when news broke in Philadelphia, where I was a reporter with the Philadelphia Daily News. And I was an investigative crime reporter, which means I would get on the big stories and then try to break new ground, break new stories and so forth. And it broke on the local news that Bill Cosby had been accused of drugging and, and this is what they said at the time, groping a former Temple University employee. So my boss assigned me to it. And, you know, my first reaction was not the cause, because as I said, I was a huge fan of his and there had never been a whisper of scandal as relates to something like rape or sexual assault. I mean, there had been that one where his sort of, I don't even know how to say this, his mistress, Sean Upshaw, it came out that he had a mistress and that they may or may not have had a daughter together, Autumn Jackson, and that he had been paying Sean Upshaw for years for the care of Autumn, although never admitting or admitting he was her parent. And then he stopped paying for her care when she dropped out of college. And I think what happened is Autumn and some friends of hers tried to blackmail him and get some more money out of him. And he had her arrested for blackmail. And that's when everything kind of blew up in the news about it. But it was also right around the time his only son, Ennis, was murdered. And I think he got a huge pass because of that, you know, understandably so. I remember I felt an incredible amount of sympathy and empathy for him losing his only son like that. As I said, I'd watched the Cosby show and I knew some of the characters, especially Theo, were loosely based on his own family. So in a way, I felt like I knew Ennis myself. 
but that was it. I mean, and that was just a, you know, that was an affair that was consensual. It certainly wasn't anything like rape or, or sexual assault and certainly nothing about drugging a woman without her consent. So as a journalist, your job is to pursue the truth and set your personal feelings aside, at least how it used to be. And so that's what I had to do, you know, forget the fact that I was a huge Cosby fan, but set that aside and try to find out the truth here and report both sides. And the first thing I needed to know is who was this woman accusing him? Because of course I knew who Bill Cosby was or who we thought he was, but I knew nothing about this woman. They weren't releasing her name as is, is supposed to be the case and is always the case, excepting when you accuse Bill Cosby, apparently, of sexual assault victims, their identities are normally not released by the police or the media does not report them, even if they know them. So I had a source at Temple University who told me the name of the woman, um, although I didn't use it until I had her consent two months later. But so I was able to go through Nexus and do clip searches and find out what I could about her. And everything I found about her was just added to her credibility. She had been one of the top high school basketball players in all of Canada. She'd been recruited by 10 to 15 colleges in the, no, I'm sorry, 50 to 60 colleges in the U.S. And um, eventually chose the University of Arizona and got a full scholarship there to play basketball. She dreamed of playing for the WNBA one day. When that didn't happen, she went to Italy after college and played for 18 months and then she landed back in Canada where she was from and was trying to figure out her next steps and realizing her dreams of playing professional basketball were never going to happen when Dawn Staley, the Temple women's basketball coach, came to her and asked her if she was interested in being the director of operations. So she took that job. And Bill Cosby, of course, was a Temple alum. Now, I say alum. He actually went to Temple, but he never graduated. But he got, as he did at many colleges, an honorary degree from there. And he was on the board of trustees which is a very powerful position in a university. He was also very close with Don Staley. Um, he dedicated the Philadelphia premiere of Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids to her, and she had a huge picture of the two of them together on the wall in her office. This is all sort of painting the picture so you can understand you know, why Andrea was sort of in a position to trust him. But she didn't meet him until maybe 10 months into her time there. He was at a Temple women's basketball tent game. She was there and a donor introduced them. And then the next day he called to follow up um, with some questions because he was a huge supporter of the Temple Women's Basketball Program. He even appeared when Comcast was just local, he appeared on some commercials in support of it. So he was just very much involved with the operations of the team. And as I said, was very close to Don Staley. And so they struck up what she thought was a friendship and a mentorship. And what he would later say in his deposition was that he had his eye on her romantically from the moment he met her, but he didn't let her know that. And he said it, and he was asked why in the deposition. And basically, it was a predator prey thing. He wanted to reel her in very slowly, gain her trust, and then boom. I mean, that's how he operated. And so, anyway, they, over the course of the next 14 months, you know, they became, you know, they were mentors. And when she was, he actually made moves on her once or twice. And she was able to fend him off because she's this six foot tall. She's very athletic. He was like 10 years her father's, you know, senior, like he was her grandfather's age. So she really wasn't worried about getting in a position where she couldn't, that she couldn't extricate herself from. Plus she was gay. She was involved in a relationship with another woman. And I think on, on some level, like, he knew that. I mean, even said in the deposition, he knew that, but he said, you know, people change and sometimes people, are, you know, it was just a very crazy, the whole thing was very crazy on his part, in my opinion. So anyway, um, the night she decided she wanted to quit the basketball team and go back to Canada and become a masseuse like her father. And she was very nervous about telling Don Staley that. So she told Cosby that. And he said, why don't you come over to the house and we can talk about it? 
And she had been there before for dinner and, you know, it was if the situation was fine. So anyway, she went and within 20 minutes, he's asking her, well, you seem nervous. Do you want something to take? And she said, okay. She thought he told her it was herbal medication and they had had many talks about herbal medication because she didn't take even over the counter stuff. And supposedly he was very into holistic medicine too. And so she took it and within, you know, 20 minutes, she, she's trying to stand up. She can't stand. She's wobbly. He takes her over to the couch next to the kitchen, lays her down. And while she's lying there, unable to move or even speak, he sexually assaults her. And in the morning, she, a few hours later, she wakes up, her bra's a disarray. She's like, what happened? And he's standing there in a white robe, offering her a cup of tea and a biscuit. And so she leaves and is struggling with what happened. I mean, there's this, so many of them have said there's this disconnect because this is America's dad. This is this guy I thought was one thing. And now of course he's done what, what happened? What did he give me? And she tries to confront him um, a couple of weeks later. And he ends up saying something to her like, well, you know, you had an orgasm and she just freaks out and just leaves. Cause she just knows I'm not going to get any answers here. She goes back to Canada and she's not herself. She's living with her parents while she prepares to go to school. She's having nightmares. She's waking up screaming. Her parents, she's losing weight. She's withdrawn. She won't socialize with her sister or her nieces. Everybody knows something's wrong. And for the next nine months, that's what's happening. And then in January, 2005, she wakes up from yet another nightmare. And these nightmares are women being sexually assaulted in front of her. And it's her fault for not saying anything. So she wakes up screaming and crying yet again and calls her mom, who's on her way to work. And finally tells her what Cosby did to her. And that starts this whole process. Um, the assault had been a year before of her going to the police. And it breaks on the local news in Philly. And, and that's what happened. And so, you know, the more I found out about her, the more credible I found her to be. I found out there were tapes that supported what she had to say, taped phone calls. But the DA at the time, Bruce Castor, just was very clear from the very beginning. He had no intention of prosecuting Bill Cosby. His, his behavior was very favorable toward Cosby from the very beginning, which, of course, is what unearthed Tamara Green, another woman, the second accuser who came out and said that he had done this to her 30 years prior and told her story to me exclusively after she told the police and Andrea's attorneys. And more and more women started coming out there. By the end, there were 14 women total accusing Bill Cosby in 2005, but nobody wanted to hear it. The rest of the media didn't. The way their coverage was, was very slanted toward Bill Cosby. I was attacked by the other media. There was negative story printed out me and my reporting in the Philadelphia Weekly, including journalism experts, you know, saying that the Tamara Green story, which I'd run, shouldn't have been a cover story, that it was a classic he said, she said situation. And Bruce Castor, the DA, was telling reporters he could have me arrested for my stories. And, you know, I'd go on these talk shows to try to sort of get the truth out there and the nighttime, you know, and instead I, you know, I was being attacked and no one believed it. And it was, it was a very disillusioning experience because it's when I learned the phrase trading up in journalism, because the bookers on these shows told me that they were getting calls from Cosby's team, you know, basically trying to get them not to have me on. And based and what trading up is, is giving up one story to get a better one. And um, I was getting calls from Marty Singer, Cosby's attorney threatening to sue. And he was writing letters to my editors threatening to sue. But thankfully, I worked for the one publication in the country that would not back down to Bill Cosby. And I have said this, and I mean this to this day, there is no other news organization in the country that let, would have let me pursue this story in 2005 the way the Daily News did. Even today, people are still scared of it because of his power and his wealth and everything. So that's what started me on this path. And then I started, I kept covering, I've got an interview with another, one of one of the Jane Doe's, there were 12 Jane Doe's in Andrew's civil suit. Beth Farrier spoke to her. 
start, I started working for People Magazine. And after Andrea settled her civil suit in 2006, People Magazine finally agreed to run a story with the accusers and with the women accusing him. And I really had to push for that, though, because I said, you know, these women have trusted us. If these women are brave enough to have their names and photos used, shouldn't we be brave enough to run this story? But they were absolutely terrified that Bill Cosby was going to sue them. And in fact, I found out a decade later that Therese Serenis, who was Jane Doe number 10, had agreed back then to have her name and photo used, but People Magazine decided not to include it. And I say it like that because at People, it was very bifurcated. Like I, one side never knew what the other one was doing. So I knew what I was reporting, but I didn't know what was going on with the other reporting or why are we weren't or not releasing, you know, reporting it. It wasn't until Therese posted on Facebook like 10 years later after the story bubbled up again. And, and my colleague at People wrote a story from her interview back then, like I was cheated, you know, because that picture, we'd even taken her own, our own photo of her, but we didn't run it. And I think it was because looking back that she at one point had accepted money from him. And I think my guess is that's why, which is crazy because, but there are so many things. She's the one in that deposition that he admitted to giving a quaalude to because he wanted to have sex with her. And when she was like 19, 18 or 19 years old. So that that's what started this whole thing. And then when it, I wasn't sure what was going to happen with this story. So when I left the daily news, the only files I really took with me were my Cosby files and I think I'd also covered a bunch of sexual misconduct scandals within the Pennsylvania State Police. I took some of that with me. But I took all my Cosby's files, put them in a waterproof box in my basement and just thought, you never know, this could come back someday. I just could not get rid of them. And then I certainly didn't think it would be Hannibal Burris bringing this back up in 2014. I thought maybe there would be other women coming forward or whatever. So when it all bubbled up again in 2014, I started covering it again for People magazine. And that's the comedian that you're referencing as to how it all bubbled up. But before we get to that, I'd like to just go back just a couple of steps because you said some so many fascinating things. And I do appreciate this is such a huge amount of work for you. It's been something you've lived and breathed for a very long time. But there are some names that have come up that we definitely need to um, explore a little bit more. You mentioned Bruce Castor. And in 2005, he seemed reluctant to want to prosecute Mr. Cosby. And 14 women come forward. He said, we punish people for intentional and reckless criminal conduct. We don't punish people for making mistakes and doing stupid things, which seems to not describe what was going on with these incredible, brave women who came forward. And then he takes a decision not to prosecute. What, what was he saying more at that time about why he didn't want to arrest or pursue Bill Cosby? Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. 
Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Well, and I think those quotes were from the press conference he held after they interviewed Cosby. It was those type of quotes that Tamara Green heard all the way over in California and was like, she's like, I used to work for a DA and I know that's DA speak for I'm not going to charge Bill Cosby. And that's why she came forward because she thought if they don't believe, maybe he will believe this woman if he knows that he did the same thing to me 30 years prior. And that's why she came forward. You know, Castor was very odd about this whole case. Um, he took less than a month to make his decision, never bothered to interview at least half of the women who came forward. His detectives didn't even bother to have them interview them. I found out 10 years later at the first trial that his detectives didn't even know he wasn't going to charge Cosby, that they had just had a meeting that morning and come up with a list of things they needed to do for the investigation. And they heard on the news that night that he decided not to charge Cosby and they were blown away. And what was also odd is he wrote and sent out his own press release. I mean, Castor loved press conferences. I mean, he, his behavior, and I wrote about this a lot in the book, was just not the norm. I'd covered him for years, and there was never a television camera that man did not like to be in front of. He held press conferences every case he could for every piece of it. And for this one, I think it was on a Thursday it broke, and he still hadn't said anything by Monday. And by Monday afternoon, he issued like a three-sentence press release he first gave only to the reporters in the courthouse where he worked, which said nothing, something negative about Andrea in it without naming her. And then he held that press conference a couple of days later. And, you know, and then when he did finally, he even trashed Andrea pretty much in the press release he put out, which he later claimed was an immunity agreement. And that's what led to Cosby being freed last year. But he even trashed her in that press release saying, you know, there are things on, on both sides of this that make people look bad. And he kept calling like Gianna, Andrea's mother, after Andrea had told her what Cosby did to her, she said, I'm going to call him. You have to give me his number. And she said, no, mom. And she said, if you don't, I'm going to fly out there. She was a mama bear. I mean, Gianna is a very classic mama bear. And she wanted to know what drug Cosby had given her daughter because she thought maybe that's what had led to Andrea's behavior this past year. And she said it. So went the first time she see if I called her back two or three days later after they went to the police. And she said, what did you give my daughter? And he said, he claimed at first, at that point, he said it was a prescription, but he had to, he'll write down the name of it and then he would send it to her. And she said, how did you know she was going to wake up? Because, of course, why didn't you call 911? Because, of course, that's the point so many people miss about this, how dangerous mm -hmm. it is to drug somebody without their knowledge or consent. She could have died. I mean, how did you know she wasn't allergic to the drug he gave her? How did he know it didn't it couldn't interact with something else that was already in her system? And I've said this before, and I do wonder if, you know, that has happened to some women. And we just don't know about it because he's able to cover these things up. And, mm -hmm. you know, he has a lot of power. 
And so, or how many, like Tamara nearly got in a wreck after he drugged her 12 hours later, that drug was so strong. She was still loopy 12 hours later when she went to go find him and she nearly wrecked a car. And she, so she slept it off in this all night movie place she found. So, and there's another Jane Doe who said the same thing. So anyway, Gianna, he said he would send it to her. He didn't. And then he said he would check back in on Andrea in a few days. And in between that time, Andrea, her, her son-in-law is a detective. And then the detective she'd gone to in Canada suggested she taped the phone call with Cosby when he called back. And then, cause it's Canada's one party consent state. So you only need oh, Gianna. It was a legal wiretap because Gianna consented. She didn't need Cosby's consent, but right. of course, and that's the call and you can hear it in the podcast. And when people hear him talking, they can, it's so powerful, but that's the call where he offered to pay for Andrea's education. If she kept a 3.0 average, all this. And of course they didn't take him up on that, but you could sort of see, how he operates. First, they do the carrot where they try to buy them off with this scholarship. And of course, you wonder how many women got these scholarships. And I don't blame them if they did take it. Who has the strength? You know, not many women have the strength that Andrea Constan has to go up against him and have their lives trashed by the media. So that was the tape phone call. And, and Castor kept calling them illegal wiretaps. And that's why he was threatening to have me arrested because I was writing about these illegal wiretaps. And if I listened to them, then I, I could be arrested too. And so he even put in his press release, it was illegal wiretaps. And when I was writing my book, like 14 years later, there was a lawsuit that I think it was the defamation lawsuit that Andrea filed against him. And Risa Furman, who was Castor's first assistant back then, had been deposed. And in it, she said that Castor had asked her to research whether or not these were illegal wiretaps. And she went to him and she told him these are not illegal wiretaps. But he still kept saying that throughout the case. And he said it in his press release when he just announced he wasn't charging Cosby. So Castor is just, I, I still to this day, I don't know what his motive was, except he had just run for governor the previous year. And in Pennsylvania, it's a state where individuals can contribute as much money as they want. In fact, a former Reagan transportation secretary who was a close friend of Castor's had contributed like three, him and his wife had contributed like three or $400,000 to Castor's campaign. His opponent made a big deal out of it because that same guy had gotten his three, third DUI in his driveway. And instead of going to jail or getting something worse, he got to go to a cushy rehab. But that's always been his goal. And in fact, one of Cosby's attorneys did hold a fundraiser for him after this was all over. I mean, it's just, there's so many twists and turns, Nikki. It really is unreal, isn't it? Just, and so unbelievable. There's so many points when you're speaking that I just want to say, what the hell? How does that happen? You know, how does Bruce Castor not interview the women and still make a decision without consulting with the detectives that he's not going to pursue any form of charges against Bill Cosby? That That's just, firstly, just startling to me and that that decision in 2005 and that press release that you spoke about well we're going to come back to that because that has played out more recently hasn't it with Bill Cosby's release it's it's been the thing that's come back to haunt everybody in this case and and I still can't understand how that can be legal, how the decision can be legal to release Bill Cosby based on that press release that he put out take a listen to this we're following some breaking news now from the Supreme Court. Bill Cosby will remain a free man after the justices refused prosecutors' request to take up his sexual assault case. Cosby was released from prison last June when his conviction was thrown out by Pennsylvania's highest court. 
He had served three years in prison after being convicted of drugging and sexually assaulting a woman. NBC News Justice correspondent Pete Williams is joining us now from Washington. Pete, uh, walk us through what we understand from the court today and, and what exactly was the reason Cosby's case was thrown out in the first place in Pennsylvania. So first, a reminder of how this case came to the Supreme Court. After a woman claimed that Cosby attacked her, it was the county prosecutor who issued a press release declining to file charges. He said there were too many problems in the case. And then when Cosby was hit with a lawsuit filed by the victim, he talked about what happened because he believed he had immunity from prosecution. But then a new prosecutor came along and used what Cosby said during that civil lawsuit and charged him with a crime. And he was convicted. It's that conviction that the state Supreme Court threw out last year. Pennsylvania said the state court was wrong to conclude that Cosby had a good reason to rely on the original prosecutor's press release. It didn't say that no charges would ever be filed, the state had argued, and that left the door open for a new prosecutor to reopen the case. And so the state says that ruling sets a dangerous precedent, converting a prosecutor's press release into a legally enforceable grant of immunity. And I also just wanted to ask you, talking about the Daily News, because that's who you're working for, they took a very bold decision to carry on and allow you to carry on reporting. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Because, I mean, huge kudos to the Daily News and to you. Presumably that was the, the editor and just made a clear decision that actually this was a story that needed to be pursued and the truth needed to be out there. And therefore you were supported in your coverage. I was. Yeah, the Daily News, we were the sister paper to the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is the more, the paper of record, as we called it, owned by the same company, but back then two, two completely separate publications. And the Daily News had always been just a feisty newspaper that just never backed down to anybody. And that's just how they were. And it was the people paper. You know, we were, we were supposed, they always say journalism is supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that was the daily news to a T. Uh, most newspapers are not like that. It's the opposite. They're scared of the ones who are the most of the comfortable. <laughs> they don't want to anger them. They don't want to be sued by them. And the daily news just was not like that. And they, I never, my boss was great, Kurt Hine. He never said anything to me about any pressure he was getting. I didn't even find out I don't even think until I was writing the book that there had been letters written, that Marty Singer had also written letters threatening to sue the Daily News. So I, I was getting those angry phone calls from Marty Singer every day. So I knew he was just trying to bully me off the story. It just made him matter and matter when he would see me on TV at night. And then back then there was the Knight Ritter Wire, which Knight Ritter was like owned the, a chain of newspapers that owned us. And so my stories were also going out on the Knight Ritter Wire and appearing in other publications. And they, you know, Cosby had always been able to control the media always been able to control the media. And what I later learned is, again, it was the carrot and stick approach, which they pulled with me at first, because Cosby had been crisscrossing the country doing these town halls when all this broke in inner cities, lecturing Black people about how to behave, basically, believe it or not. But as a journalist, you weren't allowed in unless you were invited in by him. And so one of the first things his spokesman said to me is, oh, we got to get you in one of these town halls. And of course, that offer quickly went away the more aggressive my stories got because I can't right. be bought off on a story. You would never, I will never trade up on a story like that. Not if it's my decision. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. 
Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. And just to say thank you for that, because I know this has come at a huge cost in the sense of, you know, those conversations you had with Marty Singer, just lots of things that you had to deal with, which were horrific. And, and the women as well, of course, the victims, the survivors, the incredible women who I heard at the Skirball and have interacted with numerous times. But I do want to thank you for your incredible reporting and the Daily News, because it, it could have all gone away, but you carried on and, and were doggedly determined to pursue the truth, the facts and the evidence. And I know we've spoken before and you always say, and it's 100% what I agree with, follow the facts, follow the evidence, not following the emotion. Because a lot of people, and you talked about it just at the start, you know, we have to remember what Bill Cosby and what he represented. I mean, he was huge in the UK too. America's dad, he came across as this sort of very affable, funny, wholesome person because of his the character that he played. He played a doctor, Dr. Huxtable. I still remember it. It was my childhood. So uh, you were a fan of his, as was I, as was Jim and Lisa. We all grew up with him. And that's the context. And you talking about Andrea as well, the fact that he was on the board of trustees and that he were, he presented as a mentor and that he was trying to help. Everything that he was doing in terms of facilitating contact was to help. And she saw him as this grandfather type figure, not as somebody for a relationship. And again, that part to me is just so important that my listeners understand the, the trust and the power imbalance that existed and the celebrity. And we've talked about the power of celebrity as well. And so him being able to leverage things in the media and control the media, that's incredible that the Daily News just stood strong, as did you, even though there were attempts to buy off, manipulate, create leverage, and yet you continued to follow the facts and the evidence. I mean, amazing and kudos to you. Well, thanks. Yeah, as I was saying in another interview I did recently, the more you try to push me back into a corner, the more I'm going to push back because I believe these women, I believe my reporting, and I'm not going to back off of a story. Um, in fact, the issues I've had in my career have been when editors at other publications have tried to get me to back off a story, and I just don't believe in that. I mean, if I gain someone's trust, and I've spent years trying to build that, in some cases I've spent years trying to build that trust, and then editors, for whatever their own reason, want to destroy it, I push back because I, I'm the one who got them to agree to do the interview in the first place. And the last thing I want to do is betray them. But there's so many in the media, they truly don't care, especially if it's not a celebrity. Now, they care if it's a celebrity, because that's what I found out that was so hard about this story as my career went on is because celebrities, one of the reasons they have this power is because their agents also represent other agents and uh, other stars. So if you irritate, if you do a negative story about one star, then they will cut off your access to another star or indefinitely to that one. And also they, celebrities have deep pockets. They can file frivolous lawsuits. Bill Cosby, after this rebroke again in 2014, filed a couple of several 
well, at least a couple um, frivolous lawsuits uh, against Andrea Constand. So they're bullies. And that, you know, the media, the fact that the media lets them get away with it is, is what's so horrific to me. When I think about when the Me Too scandal broke, I thought, you know, the only reason the New York Times is doing that story is because A, it's celebrities accusing a man that no one's ever heard of. And B, there's a paper trail because there were all these settlement agreements that Weinstein had with these women. And so there was like a paper trail. And but also I think it's because the women who were accusing him were celebrities. I mean, I always say this, too, even because Cosby still has many, many fans today. And I said, I think it's easier for to believe for people to believe that a Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein committed the crimes they're accused of because nobody ever heard of them before their scandals broke. With Cosby, there's a 40 year, 50 year career of him being an angel that's in people's minds. And that's a huge reason I think that people still don't want to believe it. And also the fact that sexual assault victims are treated to a higher standard than any victims of any other violent crime. You know, they have yes. to prove, that, you know, tomorrow said this at our, our Chasing Cosby live event in L.A. You know, you have to, if you're a burglary victim, nobody, you don't have to prove you're this perfect person. I wrote about this in the book because tomorrow, every bad thing, and she hadn't done that many, but she had some things happen in her life in the 30 years since Cosby had drugged and assaulted her. And it got dragged out for the media. And it got to the point in 2005 where Tamara just started admitting things herself because she's just like, hey, Dan Abrams, by the way, I, I had a DUI too. Did you know that? And, you know, and I, I and yes, I did. <laughs> she's so funny. You, you've heard her, you know how she is. And actually some of these excerpts are on my website. But anyway, she just started doing it herself because she was just like, this is, this is just getting absurd. And so I went to some of my sexual assault experts and I said, does any of this matter? If, if someone had, you know, was sexually assaulted 30 years ago and then had some things she did later, does that have any bearing on her credibility? And they were like, no, you know, even prostitutes can be raped basically is what they said. What matters is the rape is the rape. And what happened, what you did like 20, 30 years later, what happened in your life then is no relevance whatsoever to whether what you said happened back then. And Tamara had told people along the way and around the time when it happened, which they always ask for. So that was very helpful. And they said, but that's why these rape shield laws were created to protect this from happening to women in court. So to a certain level, women are protected in court, but they said now the defense attorneys just go to the media with the information and the media runs with it, all of which is true. It was true back then, and unfortunately, it's still true today. So that's the tough part. And the other part, though, is that Andrea Constand was that perfect victim. She had no skeletons in her closet. She was 30, 31 when this happened. Pristine record, never no run-ins with the law, never bounced a check, nothing. So what the Cosby team did is they made up lies about her. And like they said, that phone call with Andrea's mother was Andrea's mother trying to extort Cosby for cash. And it was before they went to the police, none of which was true. It was after they went to the police and they turned down the money offer from Cosby that he offered that she did not ask about. But the media ran with it. And I said, that's what's a shame about this is just that even if you are someone who doesn't have a skeleton in your closet, these powerful people can make up lies about you and leak it to the media and the media will run with it. And as a regular person, you don't have the means to say, I'm going to sue you for defamation. I mean, that's something a celebrity has the power to fight, not Joe Schmo, you know, or, you know, Andrea Constan, who's a struggling student in Canada. And it's also not in her nature to do that. I mean, when, when she eventually filed a defamation lawsuit against Castor, she had had her back pressed up against the wall and finally had to do something. And he was running to be DA again. <laughs> and she won that lawsuit? She was they successful. settled out of court. Yeah. Yeah. So they settled a couple months before this second trial. No, a couple months before. I'm sorry. A couple months before um, my book came out. 
And it is important to, to mention what Tamara said is 100% true. If you're a burglary victim or a victim of a robbery, you don't have to be a nice, incredible person for that to have, have happened. And I remember her saying that specifically, and that should resonate with everybody. Anybody could be raped or abused. And actually, if you're acting out afterwards, that to me is more evidence that it likely happened because trauma resides in the body. So that is an important part. If you see emotional dysregulation, I've just been talking about that with Gabby Petito. That to me was evidence of watching her on the body-worn camera footage that she was being abused because of her level of distress. And meanwhile, he's very calm and just talking and joking with the police. So again, now we understand trauma much better these are things that we should be looking for that actually, well, they show that it's much more likely that it did happen. And I think what you described with Bill Cosby is what I call DAVO, which is a tactic that's used a lot, which is to deny and to attack the victim's credibility and to reverse the victim and offender role. So the smear campaign plays into that. You did really paint the picture well of Andrea and who she is. And having met her, she does have this very calming and strong sense about herself. I mean, a power, a personal power. I felt it when I met her. You know, some people just exude this sort of virtue. And the way that you described her of being somebody who was sought after, she had scholarships, she was very well thought of amongst her peers, and yet Bill Cosby targeted her. And it does sound to me like targeting because he couldn't attain her. And probably knowing that she was gay gave him a greater challenge in some senses. You talked about the victim, you know, the, the prey and, and the victim for some. It is about that. It's about that utter domination. And I've just felt with this whole case, that's what he's seeking, power and control. And if he can get it over individual women, then groups of people, but also the media and using that Davo tactic, that smear campaign, so that people put the victims under the microscope. And we've talked about that before of how often it happens where the holes are poked in everything that the, the victim or survivor has said. And yet things that Cosby says and does isn't being investigated, isn't being looked at, because most likely he's America's dad and he's well thought of. And the icon that goes with that. So it's something that I see with serial perpetrators and the more that they do it and the more they get away with it, it's like a tradecraft, the better they get at it. And of course, if you've got money, you can get Marty Singer and other people on, on your books and you've got agents, as you said, a lot of people don't think about that, you know, not being able to get access to other people and this trading going on behind the scenes, which keeps stories pushed down. And even with this still to present day, I mean, you mentioned Bruce Castor and he has just emerged as an incredibly powerful person the whole way throughout this narrative. And I, I can't understand how and why he wields so much power that he makes these decisions in a public office without any real scrutiny and how that played in. Well, we get to how that played in as to how Bill Cosby is now out. Again, it comes down to Bruce Castor and i constantly been thinking about the motivation, Nikki, as I'm sure you have. What would motivate someone to make these decisions in favour of Bill Cosby and not in favour of protecting women and women's safety? It's just confounding to me. 
It is. And, as you know, I wrote a lot more about this in the book because, like I said, I'd covered him for years. And he, there was never a tough case that man did not want to take on. And I admired his skill in the courtroom. I mean, he got a conviction on a murder once uh, where they didn't even have the murder weapon. They had the imprint of the gun in a holster. Um, I actually, it was funny, I, I was going back through Nexus when I was writing the book, trying to, you know, looking up him and and I found some stories I'd written about another drug facilitated sexual assault case where he said it's like second or third degree. Well, he said it, it's like using, he's using a drug is like using a knife or a gun in a weapon, you know, in a rape. And I was like, wow, he actually said, I put that in my book because I was like, that's really interesting. And I, he had also his office had covered the, the Michael Evans state trooper case where he had been preying on women for years while on the job. And it was all women who, who were like runaways or domestic violence victims, all women he met while on the course of duty. And, you know, his office had prosecuted that and, and gotten a deal where he got actually some prison time. So I, I truly was surprised when he just immediately wanted nothing to do with this case. And as far as Andrea and Cosby, I will also say that Andrea was very vulnerable because she was in Philadelphia, her family, everybody's back in Canada. And she's a very kind person who's also very naive. So she's a very gentle person. So he he definitely always looked for vulnerability in his victims and how he could prey on that. And, and that's what he did there. And I think that night that he drugged her, he knew she was going to be leaving and that was going to be his last chance to get what he wanted. And he knew he wasn't going to get it any other way because she could overpower him. She could stop him because she was a very strong athlete, six feet tall, and he had to drug her to get what he wanted. And Bill Cosby always gets what he wants. And that's what's so horrifying. And, you know, just as far as the rape stuff, too, and the victims, the same thing happened. So the presidential race, when Tara Reid, the Joe Biden accuser, the woman who said Joe Biden sexually assaulted her back in the 90s, I didn't know what to make of that. I mean, I'd seen some of the stories. I've seen all the creepy stuff about his behavior with young girls, which there was just something Friday where he was doing and sniffing a 13-year-old girl's neck and just saying stuff to her, no dating until you're 30 just really inappropriate, creepy stuff that he's still doing that the mainstream media is not reporting on. I listened to a podcast interview with Tara that she'd done. And again, it was like with the podcast, I thought what was so powerful because I was listening to some of these interviews I did when I was on a plane. And there's something very powerful about the podcast medium where you're not looking at a person and you're just hearing the voices because you can hear all the raw emotion in their voices. And listening to that one by Tara Reid, I was very struck that the raw emotion in her voice reminded me so much of the Cosby survivors. It really did. And she's probably got more corroboration for her claims than most sexual assault victims do. I mean, from down to her mother calling into Larry King and all of that stuff. But again, the, the media just piled on her because they, of course, were up against another person accused of multiple sexual crimes, Trump. Um, the media just didn't want anything to do did not want Trump to win. And so they trashed the New York Times too. They trashed this poor woman and they picked up every bad thing that had happened to her afterward to use to trash her credibility. And again, as you said, a lot of times sexual assault victims, their lives do go downhill mm. after this happens to them. They do spiral into, I mean, I wrote about that a lot in my book. I have a lot of statistics. How many of them end up addicted to alcohol or drugs or, you know, their PTSD. Um, so many of the women experienced all of that. So of course, you know, your life may go downhill after this happens to you. But the worst thing was, is they, the sexual assault, like I said, why didn't you interview a sexual assault expert like I did in 2005 and ask, does any of this matter about what Tara Reid is saying Joe Biden did to her back in 1997? And they didn't, there was no quote to that effect in their story. Cause that's, what's relevant. I'm not an expert. 
but I would like an expert to explain to our readers, you know, if this matters or not. If they asked that question, they certainly didn't use any quotes from the sexual assault experts that explained it. Like Delilah Rumberg said to me all those years ago, she was head of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape and director of the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. No, it doesn't matter. A prostitute can be raped. Yes, and it's 100% true. I've worked with victims of trauma my whole career. And, you know, to the point that, yes, your life can go downhill because of the trauma, because of coping mechanisms of alcohol, drugs, and, and so on. But I also know a lot of women who've turned it into their superpower, that have become incredible advocates. So either way, having experts to explain the behaviour is really important, whether it's in court or whether it's in the media. And we know that with Cosby's case, there was Dr. Barbara Ziv, who has featured in other cases, but educating the court is really important. Focusing on what do we tend to see with victims and what do we tend to see with perpetrators. And you mentioned something very important, which was Mr. Cosby, whenever he wants something, he gets it. You know, this isn't someone who's had no said to them a lot throughout their life course. This is somebody who has mass-groomed so many. And interestingly, his tactics always seem to be to groom the individual girl or woman, but then to groom her family too. And of course, families saw him on TV as well. And that leverage of our pay for college or our pay for a scholarship or whatever else it might be, yes, you mentioned it could well be attractive for someone to take that offer rather than speak out. So I would imagine, Nikki, there are there are many more, many more victims and survivors that have never spoken out about this. And I know some of them have made themselves known to you and some are still, you know, anonymous, but there were a lot of young victims here as well, weren't there? I mean, at, at least 13, we're talking about 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds who were still classed as, as children. I mean, they were young. It wasn't just women that he was targeting. It was young girls as well. And you wrote a a blog about that. And of course, there's been a recent civil case. Will you say a little bit about that and just the scale and scope of of victims? Sure, because that's another thing that struck me, especially when the Epstein thing happened, you know, and I think there was a lot of, and there should have been empathy for the victims because they were so young. They were teenagers when he targeted them. And when this rebroke again, there were so many victims coming out over and over again. I think that I know I got oversaturated. I could barely keep track of them, but how many of them were teenagers? There are 13 that we know of. And most of his victims that we know of were either in their teens or in their like early twenties. They were very, very young and very naive. And that's one of the reasons, main reasons he targeted them. I mean, he's not targeting a Felicia Rashad, who's his co-star on the show. There's a differential of power that he's in a much more powerful position than they are. And one of them, her civil suit finally came to trial against him last June in LA, Judy Huth. And she was 16 at the time when she said this happened to her. And then a new victim was revealed at that trial too, which I wrote about in my, my piece, who was also a teenager. I mean, there were three of them just in like 1976 alone, I think was the date. So that tells you too, how many, if he did that many in that year that have come forward, how many are there throughout his entire 50 year career? Um, and yes, I, he won. So Judy won that lawsuit. She got only got $500,000 in damages. He appealed it. Now he just lost that appeal. But that's what happened in Pennsylvania with the criminal case. He lost all the appeals and then he won at the highest level. So now he's appealing again. We'll see what happens to that verdict. And then Lily Bernard's case is still out there. She filed it a year ago, which has been really interesting that some states have enacted these so-called look back laws 
which give sexual, it's usually sexual assault survivors, some just children, some if you were an adult, X amount of time to file a lawsuit against their rapist, no matter how long ago it's been. So New Jersey passed one, and that's how Lily was able to file her lawsuit last October. And New York just passed one this year. And starting in November, victims have a year to file it. So I think you're going to be seeing some filed against Cosby because there are a lot of his victims that were in New York. They can be adults, though. They don't have to have been teenagers when it happened to them. So I think that's, and Judy's, like I said, they've appealed it. And I, I can't remember if hers was also because of a look back law, but I think it was. And of course, the Cosby survivors after this case burst into the public again in 2014, they lobbied and got California to eliminate its statute of limitations for sexual assault and Nevada and Colorado to extend it from like 10 years to 20 years, but just for you know criminal cases. So that was huge. And it didn't benefit them because of course, all these laws aren't retroactive. They don't go back to every sexual assault case, but it helps victims going forward, which is what's helpful. Yeah. And I mean, the look back laws are important, but I think the statute of limitations, are, that's the major problem in, in the US. And we've talked about this before, that where there are statutes of limitations, well, we know with victims, particularly if you've been victimized when you were younger and it was sexual victimization, you're much more likely to disclose it for the first time in your third or fourth decade of life. So when people say, oh, well, if it really happened, they would have come forward by now. Well, why are they only just coming forward now? These sorts of things that are said, you know, as if that proves that somebody is lying or making the allegation up or they're after money. Actually, that's what we tend to see with victims. And that's why statutes of limitations are hugely problematic when it comes to abuse. It, it does take a long time to for some to voice it. And actually, in my experience, they tend to voice it when they get married or when they have children, when they feel they're in a safe environment themselves or when they're looking at their own child and thinking about their own parenting skills. It's then that things get triggered. And that's when people speak out too. So I think that, that it's very problematic having a a limit on how long, how much time must pass, um, and then you can't disclose. So I, I hope that there will be more lawsuits. Okay, I'm jumping back in here, as this conversation will be in two parts. There's such a lot to think about with this case, so we're not done yet. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.